Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. Can we just talk about this on the show? <laughs> sure, we'll get back to it. Here let's a just bit. let's just go let's just go right now into the show and pick up where we left off. People can see <laughs> a little glimpse it's like behind the scenes here. Okay, all right, let's go right into it. Do you want me to do introductions first, or do we want to just jump right into the, this? The pre-show time is sacred, man. You can't be just tossing <laughs> that in there willy-nilly. No, but this topic <laughs> is this topic is what I'm talking about right here. <laughs> Well, we should have uh, we should put Hammer Factor on like Patreon, and if you pay like five bucks an episode, you can listen to the pre-show banter. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, on that, welcome to uh, episode number thirty-five of the Hammer Factor, the end of the year episode. Uh, my name is John Grace. Thanks for listening. My co-host on the line here, we have North Fork Champion Policy Director for the Outdoor Alliance and Ryan Zeke's Whipping Boy. Uh, let's mm. hear it for uh, Lewis Geltman. Right. Howdy. Also on the line, we have the outspoken owner of Immersion Research, Whitewater Legend, and Unicycling Enthusiast. Hmm. Getting ready to head to Peru. How's it going, fellas? Good. Here we are again. Were we just here like fifteen minutes ago? It kind of feels like that, but you're we would have another episode if it was not for you and your gallivanting around the world. Well, I have to go I have to get on a plane and get sick. Yeah. So so where are you headed? What's going on? I hear that there is a Peruvian vacation in your future. Yeah. Taking the fam to Peru. I went there a few years ago on a kayak trip. We did the, uh, what did we do? The Pacorotombo. Gelman, did you do that river? Pacorotombo? Uh, we did. Yeah. It's a fun river. It was, a, it was low when we were there. I, I see how it could get quite rowdy with more water, but it was, it was pretty mellow when we were there. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, no, it, it wasn't like super extreme white water, but it was, it, it was a really nice run. Like the team beer guys, like Ben Luck and the Klamas, those guys came back and were like, the Poker Tombo is like just top of the list, sick all time. And for those guys to say that, I think it just, I think it must have just been like Richter when they were there. Mm-hmm. It was sort of, it was not the highlight of my trip down there, I would say. Hmm. Anyway, I've uh, always wanted to go back and now I'm taking the family. And where are you going? We're going to go to Cusco, hang out, do Machu Picchu, and then I think we're going to go surfing up north. Nice, good for really you. sick, man. Yeah. And yeah, Lewis, you're still in DC. Um, what's what's the news? How, what's going on up there? Not much. Week before the holidays, just uh, had a bunch of stuff to do last week, and kind of just hanging out at the office this week. Um, catch up with the fam and all the high school friends, and yeah, good to be here. All right. Well. Can we- can we talk about what we're talking about the, the two seconds before the show started? Yeah, we can get into that. And Lewis, can you phrase your question again? But first, let me get into our top of the show sponsor. Oh, all right. Now, a huge shout out to Canoe and Kayak. Canoe and Kayak is our first ever sponsor. Canoe and Kayak has been leading the paddle sport media hustle for 45 years, reaching an unprecedented audience of nearly a half million people. With in-depth articles like the one discussing pushing the limits of nine-foot kayaks. Uh, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, notes, and I passed over to you guys. There's no more compelling way to get your paddle sports beta than canoe and kayak. 
Check them out at canoekayak.com. Back to what we were talking about in the pre-show. What were we talking about? We were talking about the new playboat that Liquid Logic, Shane, I guess we used to Liquid Logic, it's not like a, exclusively a Shane Benedict project put out. I saw it at Golly Fest and it looked like a, uh, I mean, I look, it looked like a session, like a session plus to me with like foot bumps. A longish, cartwheely, slicey looking playboat. Not, not a looping playboat. Looks well, strangely compelling for somebody who does for not playboats. Play. Like my go-to boat is the Session Plus. I still have one that's pretty much in mint condition. Ooh. Uh, but we were talking about how uh, you know Jordan seems to be the sole recipient of these boats. Jordan is probably the highest-paid freestyle kayaking athlete out there. We should say freestyle running athlete, not a kayaker. I mean. Do you know any other paddler that has that much access to that many boats that are solely theirs? That's a good point. I mean, with all due respect to Jordan, he's a C1 or two. Uh, this is what we were talking about pre-show yeah. and what I don't, what I can't wrap my head around is like, you can't have a C1 or prototyping a kayak. Like it's not, you take a boat and make it the way a C1 or wants it. It's not going to be a good kayak. It's like your legs aren't in front of you. You're sitting higher it's just different, you know. There's a reason why. In slalom, almost extinct. Well, that, but like also, like if you look at like slalom, I'm sorry, George. Designing, designing. I'm so sorry. I want custom boats for different rivers that I go to. How do I Me make too. that happen? You want like a quiver of boats. I want like a quiver 15, of my own boats. boats. Yes, that no one else gets but me. And I get to And they get maybe them. swapped out every year or so. You get five or six new boats for whatever you're into that year. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Is, is Liquid Logic going to production with this boat or not? Have you heard anything more about this? So she back, offense about it when I talked to him about it. Well, so back to talking what Lewis was talking about earlier. I put a comment on his Facebook feed, and you can see Shane posted a picture of the boat on his Facebook, so you can go there and check that out. But I said, is this is this going to be a boat that everybody gets to use or is it just for Jordan? And he said, it's going to be out in, in spring. So it'll be available in the spring. My, my, if I had, if I had a million dollars, I would have like my own boat design shop and I would have like BDP or somebody who you could pay like $8 an hour to like sand your plugs down. And I would go in and be like, add like two inches of Bondo here, <laughs> sand it down to 600 grit. And I'll be back tomorrow and tell you what other changes I want. <laughs> and I would have my I designed by me by somebody <laughs> i mean my question is is why don't why don't they take the time and energy and design a brap for women and smaller people you know people in the 130 to 140 pound weight range you know what i mean because it's frustrating that if you weigh 140 pounds you're never going to paddle a boat as good as a brap because i i shouldn't this is it just seems like you know they they're like we did the brap and now we're kind of we're kind of bored of it we're going to go on to the next thing before they've really, I, I think, fleshed out the BRAP as a fully formed idea, which would mean it means at least making two versions of it, right? And not a crappy, last-minute, me-too small boat like most of these small boats are, but one that has as much R&D and, and time put into it as the original, right? No, I think I if you weighed 140 pounds, the BRAP would be sick, man. You could, especially like the party BRAP, if you weighed 140 pounds, you could run anything in that thing. <laughs> no, but like a boat like, that's, <laughs> that, that performs the same way the BRAP performs for you. I, I wish you. I were lighter. Hey, huh? I've been asking for a brat. I wish I were lighter in that boat, but I, I've been asking for a brat family since the brat came out. But Yeah, I mean I think it's a, you know. Anyway, 
We love the party, Brad. Moving on. This email comes at us from uh, Fred Morrison and Nelson Jones. And this is a good one. Gentlemen, <laughs> I like this. He starts it with, go ahead, Lewis. Oh, I don't know. I was just waving at Kara in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this starts out, this is from Fred Morrison and Nelson Jones. I like the way he starts this out. Gentlemen and Weld, <laughs> after listening to yesterday's episode of Hammer Factor, I really wanted to hear Lewis do a Mythbusters on this whole land deal in the West. I really appreciate Lewis's honesty in calling out the hyperbole with, hi- with Patagonia's message on their website. Living in rural Colorado, our local friends have shared a variety of views from siding wholly with Patagonia as well as some sharing the lovely feature from the illustrious Glenn Beck, um, from he a, had Gl- a link there to a Glenn Beck. Yeah, from a Glenn, rant. Glenn Beck rant, which started out with, I'll let Lewis get into that. Um, we feel like a comprehensive shakedown of number one, what this act will and will not do, and number two, what it could become and evolve into in years down the road. And finally, the likelihood of this litigation going through and doing what Trump is expecting this to do. It would be an excellent listen for the Hammer Factor community. So did you see this Glenn Beck video, Lewis? Did you have a chance to look at that? I don't follow Glenn Beck link, sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, should have, you should have said it was like Yvonne Chouinard and then maybe I would have or something. But. Well, let's put this issue in the no-spin zone, shall we? Exactly. Let's uh, let's let's uh, <laughs> set aside your your uh, your cap as policy director for Outdoor Alliance and give us the, the complete straight. Well, here. I don't even have to set aside that cap because I do think, you know, to pat ourselves on the back here for a sec. One thing that we try really hard to do is to be super honest about this stuff. Like, I think that there are a lot of conservation organizations that in a well-meaning way, every single thing that happens is like the sky is falling because they want to get people to, you know, take action, get fired up, do whatever. And we have made, we make a very conscientious effort not to do that. Like when you, when we tell you, like when you get something from OA and we're like, the sky is falling, it's because the sky is falling. And when it's like, you know, a committee vote in Congress and as important as that might be, if that's like step one in 10 opportunities to kill this thing, like we're going to tell you that too. So I, I hope that we're not, (laughs) uh, not doing too much hyperbole here. So, um, I mean, I think we talked about this a lot in the last show and probably several before that, but what Trump did was he like, drastically scaled back the area on national public lands that are protected as national monuments. And so all the land before these designations were put in place, it was all federal public lands. There's no state land that's affected. There's no private land that's affected. This wasn't like taking land from Utah or taking land from anybody. This is land that belongs to all of us as Americans already. And what President Clinton did with Grand Circus Escalante and what President Obama did with Bears Ears was basically change the way those areas were managed into a more protective uh, management regime by declaring them as national monuments, which the president, which, the authority. Which did. meant what? Like if you live next to these things, how did that affect you? Like you couldn't do what now that these were these 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 designations have changed? 
and, principally. And in the Glenn Beck video, Glenn Beck starts it by saying, all Trump did was allow you to walk on your public lands that you couldn't walk on before. That's a, a outright lie. I mean, you anyone was free to go to any of these places before they were monuments. They were free to go to any of these places once they were monuments, and they're still free to go to any of these places now. So the idea that there is some change in access regarding walking is totally false. Um, you know, I think from our perspective, principally what it did was stop oil and gas development and um, uranium mining in those areas and coal mining in Grand Staircase Escalante. Um, it's mainly aimed at protecting the the antiquities in those areas. So it's a lot of uh, you know, like secret sites for Native Americans down there. There's a lot of uh, like archaeological sites and artifacts and things like that. Um, so mainly these protections are aimed at protecting those attributes of these places. But I mean, before before they were designated, could could you snowmobile on them, but now you can't? Or could you four-wheel on them, now you can't? Or could you hunt on them, now you can't? I mean, things, people from that area maybe... Hunting, for sure, you could do before and could still do as monuments. I think that there probably were some restrictions on motorized access that came with the monument designations. Okay. Um... So, where were we? How about yeah? How about like grazing? How about you had cattle and stuff like that? So I, I believe that with both of those monuments, and I, I would have to double check on this. I think that all the existing grazing got grandfathered in, but I think that it would probably preclude like a big ramp up in grazing. But I, I would have to check. But I'm I'm sure that all the existing uses got protected. Mm-hmm. So if you should check out this like. I think, I don't know if I talked about this before, we should put this in the show notes. Uh, Levi Rose, who's our GIS analyst, put together this super sick uh, story map using Esri. And you can see all the maps of these these areas with like really good quality um, GIS tools, basically. But it kind of like walks you through so you're not just like scrolling around on these maps trying to understand what this means on your own. And he could kind of like shows where all the climbing areas are, where the trails are, where the I guess the artifacts piece is missing because you can't, it's a, a little problematic to show those, those kinds of things on the internet because then they end up getting looted. But uh, you can kind of like see where the resources are, see where the, how the boundaries changed. One thing that's really crazy to look at is there's this long line of um, kind of like existing uranium claims that goes through uh, bears ears and so that's indicative of like a resource there that people want to develop like and so by splitting bears ears into two smaller monuments it's basically being done to facilitate uranium mining on this vein that kind of runs through what's the middle of this protected area right now and similarly where they're pulling back the eastern boundary you can see where there's so the way oil and gas leasing works is industry nominates parcels that they would like to potentially lease. Like there's like an expression of interest to BLM and then BLM potentially puts those leases up for sale. So when there's a, a potential oil and gas lease, that's because industry has already 
you know, sees that as a potentially lucrative area to develop. And there's nominated parcels that are basically being opened up by pulling back this boundary. So it's kind of being done to facilitate oil and gas development in a place that right now is protected from that. So what are the like top five pieces of misinformation floating around about this, this, uh, you know, this piece of legislation? Like what's the, I guess I don't, I don't, I don't have my finger to the pulse of, of that story as much as maybe I could. But, you know, I think one is the idea that in some way this was, you know, these designations were taking private land or were exerting control over land that, you know, belongs to Utah and not all of us across the country. That's not true. You know, these places, all of this dispute is over places that are nationally owned, nationally managed public lands, and they always have been. And the idea that Utah has some claim to these areas is like, it's just not, I mean, I understand the sort of sentiment that, you know, locals know best and they're the voice that we should be listening to and how we manage these places. But that voice is always, always, always like a really important part of how, you know, the conversation about how these places get managed. The, you know, there's this idea that, you know, there are these decisions that are being made by like bureaucrats in Washington, DC and the people who live in Utah don't have any say or don't, you know, they're not, their values aren't being reflected in management decisions. And it's just not true. It's like the forest service, the BLM, they're, you know, geographically incredibly dispersed and DC sort of sets high level policy, but in terms of on the ground decision-making, it's being made by people in these field offices who are members of these communities live in these places, you know, send their kids to school with the, you know, the kids of the ranchers. Like it's not, it's not somebody sitting in some office building in Washington DC who's deciding how this is all shaking out in practice. I think just the idea that this is like, the federal government versus the people who actually live there is, is it's not really accurate real quick before we, before we move on to for for fred and nelson here can you sup on the waters now and could you before hmm. is that according to our aesthetic preferences or just the law <laughs> the law <laughs> <laughs> Can you access the put-in and take-outs of a river that's in these monuments before, and can you do it now? Absolutely. Can can you go for a trail run now, just like you could then, or could you, or or you can only do that now? You could do that before it was a monument. You could do it when it was a monument. You could do it now, but now the chances that you might be running by some oil and gas derricks are substantially higher. Can I personally mine for uranium on these properties? Good question. <laughs> Probably easier to make that happen than you might think. Like hard rock mining is one of the most antiquated um, paradigms for how we manage public land. It's all governed by these mining laws from 1872. And it's like, it's fucking insane. It's like the same things that were you know, governing like the gold rush or how we manage hard rock mining on public lands now. And it's nuts. Well, Fred and Nelson, I didn't finish their email. Thank you for all you guys do and spreading information for for outdoor Alliance and spreading the stoke of kayaking. Looking forward to the next episode. And we still hope you all might come to paddle fest in BV. 
Grace, we have T-shirts ready to ship. Hmm. Actually, you know what? I feel like I should touch on one other thing, which is like, I don't know, not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but you know, as much as it's about the policy for these particular places, like it's easy to be like, ah, you know, like I don't really care about what's going on in Utah, but you know, these are permanent protections, or these are intended to be permanent protections, and the idea that you know the president can just roll back these things because, you know, on a whim is insane. You know, they they launched this project of reviewing national monuments with the idea that, or giving it the window dressing that the problem was that the last administration had done, you know, inadequate public outreach on these things, which is a, a total falsehood. And they put this thing out for comment and they got 2.8 million comments, like overwhelmingly, like 90 plus percent, maybe 98 percent, I don't know, like, supporting the existing national monuments you know these things have unbelievable amount of popular support the antiquities act you know like places like the grand canyon that was originally designated as a national monument and before it came it became a national park grand teton that was originally a national monument before it became a national park black canyon the gunnison like super sick paddling uh, run in colorado that was a national monument before it was a national park like there's a long history of these designations protecting places that matter, and the idea that that we can just like roll these things back on a whim is like a, is a totally fucked precedent, <laughs> you know? Like that that cannot stand. And there's you know more monuments on the list that they want to start making changes to, and it's just you know, I mean, it, this is a big deal. There you got it, right from the horse's right. mouth. <clears throat> Thanks for that, Lewis. Well, okay, we're going into a new year. So this is going to be our last episode before the new year. Uh, because this could be our last episode, period. This legitimately could be our last episode, period, which I just want to throw it out to you guys. What do you guys want to see happen with the Hammer Factor? Is this it? Are we done? I think if we're going to get rid of it, we should do it quickly. Just take it out in the yard, shoot it. Boom. Done. I agree. I think if I think if that's the course, thirty nine, thirty nine, thirty nine is a big deal. A lot of people don't make it to four podcasts, right? So, and we're starting to get hate mail. I mean, the hate mail is piling up. We certainly have. Um, we'll get into that here in a second. What do you think, Lewis? I mean, you know, you guys have been with ninety percent of these podcasts. You got to throw some cool, opinion cool. out there. Can we still have like a, a weekly conference call where we just tell each other we're idiots? <laughs> Lewis had a good idea where we do like a uh, like a subscription service where if you pay a subscription, you could have special access to the pre-show. <laughs> there have to be a waiver involved or something. I don't know. <laughs> a gag order along with it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, um, no, honestly, why? Not? I think we should keep going. I, I thought. I thought, Grace, when you talked about doing this last year, I, I was just like, sure, let's do it. I thought we'd run out of stuff to talk about in two episodes or three episodes, but we haven't, depending on who you ask. <laughs> I do think that there are topics that we could take out into the yard and shoot. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah. I think we could do it maybe like every other week and speaking for myself, prepare a little bit more. Well, That might be helpful. I st- like in, in, in my head, I have like 10 things lined up that I want to talk about for future shows, personally speaking. Right. I mean, all, in all seriousness. You should send them around. We should, we should, uh, vet them. 
Yeah, I can talk about Whitewater all day long. So anyway, I'm just saying over the next few weeks, everybody's holiday, travel, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just think about that, you know. What would you do if, if Hammer Factor was not in your life? <clears throat> and let me throw it out to the listeners. What do you want to see? What are, you know, our ship. You sound like a like one of the like an NPR pledge drive right. there. <laughs> How much is Hammer Factor worth to you? Uh, it's your time to sit down, relax, have a cup of tea, <laughs> and listen to your friends of the Hammer Factor. How much is that worth to you? Uh, <laughs> All right. Have you ever had a driveway moment with the hammer factor? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let me. Uh, yeah. All right. You're gonna keep. Going. You still run the stuff on the list here. You yeah. keep going on the list. Yeah. Let's get right. on the list. What's gonna happen with Whitewater Sup next year? Any predictions? It's it's blowing up at this point. I mean, are we at like peak Whitewater Sup or is yes? It... Okay. We Next should find question. a guest. Here's who I want to have on. We should find somebody who was like a professional rollerblader in the early 90s and talk about <laughs> their career as a rollerblader and how, you know, surviving the boom and bust of rollerblading. And then we could have like Dan Gavir or someone on and have a little like like roundtable discussion about being involved in fad sports. Dude, right. I, I can call Kramer Diddy right now. Do you guys want to get him on the phone? He's a professional rollerblader. And he was there through the whole boom and bust. But this is this is more a longer conversation. We should save that one for another episode. But I think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think Whitewater Sup is going to continue its expansion, and play park kayaking will become more and more obsolete. That's my prediction. <laughs> yeah, I, we're, we're into the area of things which should be taken out in the yard and shot. I think. Um. <laughs> uh. So what uh what about trends for for the year? What did you see this year um, from your guys's perspective? I think kids boating is going to be a thing. I've had more requests for kids gear in the past year than I have in the eighteen years previous to that. Yeah, it's a good sign. I've seen. Yeah, a I huge, think it's a great sign. I've seen a huge amount of youth interest here in the southeast as well. Yeah, so. I think that bodes well for our sport too, for sure. Yeah. What about so, you? I think Lewis? activism is pretty hot right now. What is activism? I like that. I feel like people are. That was uh, Max Blackburn, Super Rep, calling me. Should we patch uh, him in? Max Blackburn, Super Rep. <laughs> super Rep of the North, Northwest. <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, fighting for public lands, fighting for rivers, it seems pretty hot right now. What about personally? You guys got any New Year's resolutions? I do have a New Year's resolution. What, what's that? My New Year's resolution is, I'm sure you guys feel this way, like you have friends who are, you think of as being like really good friends who you haven't talked to in like six months or a year or years. And I think my resolution for the New Year is to call one of those people like once a week. Like, don't you have a lot of people, like I'm sure just now people are like coming into your mind who you're like, man, I like oh, wonder yeah. what that dude's up to, you know? That's a good resolution. What about you, Will? I'm going to try and paddle uh, west of the Mississippi next year. Yeah, boy. Middle Kings? You know my thoughts on that. No. I'm going to try and get this uh, 12 weeks training plan done. Gutman says no. I don't know. It's like, a th- it's like a fetish I have. That's just a river that I've, I've fantasized about for a long time. Lewis, it's how do you hate like on it. the Middle Kings? Dude, this is like a real separation point that we have. 
it's so manky. rude and nasty and yeah, I kind of like so it. It's so manky. Know. How can you say that the middle fork of the King's River is manky? There's just like sharp rocks in places where there shouldn't be sharp rocks and they're kind of pointing in weird ways. And oh you my like, God, dude, that is so the... boat abusive. That's manky. That's just 100% false. Like just that just is false. It's not right. That's fake news. Do you think it's undermining everything Lewis is saying about about the Antiquities Act and everything else? I don't even want to go there. I don't. Even I don't know. Think I went it. once. I went once and it was too low. And I need to go back and give it another shake because I I respect your opinion on these matters and I I should go again. But I don't start hiking if if the river's below fifteen hundred CFS. Don't start hiking. 16 yeah, that was my mistake. It was it was real low when we went. It was like I left. I left the Northwest the day after I took the bar exam. So it was like, I couldn't go any earlier. Right. Well, don't blame that on the river. All right. I won't. <laughs> well, let's do a little viewer mail. We got some good ones. Let's get into the ass weapons we received here. This is from Evan Shaw. Um, if you put up the Zinky Supps t-shirt, I'll order two. Current boring t-shirt does not live up to the great pod. Also, why the hashtag on the front that no hashtag on the next shirt, please. People know how to prefix, prefix a hashtag in the off chance they ever need to prefix the hashtag. So let me tell you why I pre did that. Well, Go ahead. Evan, I haven't even seen these shirts yet. So I don't know what he's talking about. I'm kind of with him on the hashtag, but listen, this is why defend I, himself. This is why I put it on there. Number one. So many people communicate with us through the ham- through the hashtag. Like it'll show up. I'll get pinged with it. Like somebody will just make a comment. Blah blah blah. Hammer factor hashtag. I just want people to know that's an easy way to communicate with us. That was it. Right. I wasn't trying to be cool. It's a collector's edition T-shirt. So, anyway, hashtag Evan Shaw. That's your answer, <laughs> buddy. <laughs> um, we did get another T-shirt submission. Are we going to discuss that? Is this the one? We got two T-shirt submissions: one about Zinky, and another Hammer Factor shirt. The hostage make... art one. I don't have yeah. those. In, I don't have those in front of me. Go over those. I was impressed with the the exacto knife skills taken to craft that, but I'm not sure that that's the winner. Uh, no, and then our, uh, Andrew Miller has some kind of art connection. I have to call Andrew to see where this is. What this is, but I mentioned uh, Zinky water skiing on two baby coffins on Lake Powell. And uh, he sent a picture of Zinky behind a motorboat that looks stalled out, <laughs> getting ready to go water skiing. But instead of baby coffins, it looks like he's about to ski on Trump and somebody else. The graphic is too low res to see it. Did you see it? I, I did see it. I, I Who thought was it, it was. I, I thought it was. I couldn't quite tell. I couldn't tell either. But it was like the image he sent was like a. It was like a. A favicon. It was like six pixels wide. So, Andrew, if you're listening, send us a higher res picture so we can yeah. see that thing. We need the, the Zinky Sub shirt is is getting made. I don't I don't care what has to happen for that to happen. All right, Done you should put them on the on uh, the IR website. All right, All right. I can we'll, I can do that. We'll put them up. Um, and what was the other T-shirt? We I, I'm gonna put all the T-shirts up. I'll make, oh, the, and I'll make a post. We've got to find his email because he, he wrote a really nice email and uh, he sent the artwork too. Do you have that in front of you? I don't have it. It was the one with the, like, the. Find it. it was, I don't know, like eight images of kayakers beatering. Oh, that was, um, yeah. No, that was Eliza. Yeah, yeah. She said that a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I'm talking about the one that had, like, somebody we... on a piece of candy kayaking on a piece of candy. 
<laughs> oh yeah, the the treat laying shirt. Yeah, the treat laying shirt. Anyway. That was the one with the hostage art, I think. <laughs> um, hold on, I'm looking this up. Oh, and and it turns out Mac Max wants to come on the show. He has something he wants to talk about. A super rep, super rep from the from the northwest. Can we patch him in. Yeah, bring him on. Bring him on. Um, okay. While we're getting him on, I want to go to the, our next email just to keep us moving along here. This is from Robert yeah. Fleischel. Um, Robert says, tell Shane to rant on himself for not even having a production playboat. <laughs> Number two, Lewis is sponsoring electrical tape on paddles, but condemning duct tape. Let him know his double speak has been noticed. Number three, episode 38, return the hammer factor to its old glory. Hmm. The former were sluggishness and sponsors kind of take away from the show. Maybe it's been something else on the past few episodes, but they didn't resonate with me as much as the others. 38 is back. Sluggishness. Thank you. So I know, I know what Robert's talking about here. So we had a whole lot of technical difficulties for two kind of three episodes. And there was a heavy handed editing that I had to do. So like last episode, you really heard the conversations and whatnot. And the two before that, there were a lot of editing. So I think that's probably what was going on there. But I'm not sure. But he likes it. I'm not sure to thank Robert or not, but thanks, Robert. Hmm. Um, I'll move on until you find that, Mr. Weld. I found it. I got it. Okay. Let's. let's yeah, it's, it it's Joseph Joseph Mayer, and he writes, Hey, guys, I want to cut right to the chase. I envisioned, I envisioned the shirt uh, before the contest was announced. In fact, it came into full focus the moment... Weld cracked the case regarding the rise in popularity to close grip. The very moment he uttered the words, quoting Evan Garcia, it helps with laying treats. The whole thing came into focus. Uh, anyway, he gave us a shirt idea here that is lo-fi, DIY, uh, sort of an 80s punk rock flavor. Um, uh, let's see. It's, uh, did, you, did you guys see this? I did. It's great. I did, yeah. It's sort of a ransom note type thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And he thinks it would be a well a good fit for the Long Creek Gangstas or any other outlaw paddler types. And he could be correct. We should get these on the website because we need we need public input, just just like uh, the Bears ears. We need a public input on this decision. We'll we'll, we'll do that. Can and, you and just like Bears ears, we've already prejudged the outcome. <laughs> so to be clear, <laughs> having a T-shirt contest with the Hammer Factor, IR is going to chip in a free dry top tech, Whoever submits the winning thing, um, you could write. What's the email they're going to submit these to, Mr. Grace? Hammerfactor at amongstit.com. Right. If you write, if you send your T-shirt ID there, we're going to post, put them on whatever website we have or Facebook or however we do this, and we're going to get uh, some people to judge them. We'll announce uh, the day of judging in one of the upcoming episodes, and people can take a look at what we have, and we'll pick one. Before we move to the next email, can you just kind of say the way you did, the way that he was just explaining you said laying treats on that episode? Because... I know exactly what he was talking about. I don't. You said created because I, I, did, I had a certain level of just. He kind of pinned it because I had a certain level of disgust about the whole thing. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it was brilliant. Definitely going to make the highlight reel. I think. I, I think for New Year's, I'm just going to come out with a highlight of the best little clips and put that out there. That should be our opening. Like our opening credit should be that. Perfect. Um, yeah, like like Kornheiser does. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Jordan Yara says, so a topic suggestion, suggestion, then clarification. Um, can the, 
can the hosts clarify their thoughts on playboating? Is it they're not into the modern hull boats, just generally not into playboating, etc.? Love the show. By the way, thanks for making it. Jordan Yaris. Um, I, I mean, having lived through the playboating boom and had a playboat and playboated a bunch, and I think I, I, I you know, I think I have a handle on the shortcomings of that aspect of kayaking. I just feel like uh it's too they're too unipurpose and unless you live in really the right kind of conditions they're they're just not that much fun for the long term it, you know and the other thing is i point this out when we're talking about cabo day but i think the explosion of pay, playboating came from boats like the rpm and the uh the hurricane and these bigger playboats and the tricks people used to do in them were amazing but they're also really hard to do uh, but when you could pull it off, it was, I thought it was badass. It was seriously badass. And I think they dumbed down these boats so much to make these tricks accessible to literally anybody. Uh, that's was kind of where, in my opinion, things probably took a turn for the worse in that regard. But like you go back to the brap and you start like in the right place, I can throw in, you know, I can throw ends in the brap, you know what I mean? And I can flat spin the brap on a, on the, on the right kind of wave, you know, not every single glassy wave, but on the right kind of wave. And it, that's where it's, I think it's really cool. There you go. I like that. Lewis, you got anything to add to that one? I don't know. Playboy is just not for me. Moving on. Rahul <laughs> Subramanian. Subramanian. Do you think I said that right? This is from Rahul. He says, questions for Hammer Factor, specifically Mr. Grace. How can an East Coast whitewater kayaker prepare for running big water rivers on the West Coast, i.e. North Fork of the Payette, White Salmon, and Lockshaw? Number two, can you talk about how you prepared for the Stikine? 2A, if possible, talk about the one-day descent that you did. Because that blew my mind. Okay, there's a lot there. Um, we kind of talked about the prepping for different water on the last episode. I think that you got to get a lot of days and you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations. you got to make sure that you're rolling a lot. And I'll tell you something that can really help you is to get in a brap or a ripper or something like that and do a lot of squirting a lot of flipping a lot of coming over the back of your boat and get used to that so that's not such a foreign place because when you're running big whitewater sometimes you got to take it down the meat and you're probably going to flip and if you're used to that that can help man this is a tough one i'm going to get back to this one on a later show you guys because when you talk about how you prepared for the stikine one day descent, man, that's a whole story as well. So anyway, I'm going to get back to you on that one, Raul. But there's some great questions there, but there are a lot more. I mean, there are, there's an hour show there that we need to break down all those points if we're really going to give you any value bombs. It's like, can you succinctly explain to me how to be a badass paddler? Thank you. I'll go ahead and get off the line and listen to your answer. I think you got to I think the thing to do is to take your local run and start running it higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and go until you can't go anymore. And like which also I think is one of the funnest things to do. It's Ooh. just like picking a run. Like I feel like to run anything at really high water it's it's really important to know the run really well and to kind of like step it up a little at a time. And like just doing that with your home run or like any run that you really feel kind of passionately about, I feel like it's like a really fun project to take on, you know? I agree. Like like the Blackwater or, you know, the Little White, like just kind of inching it up 
a little at a time and just getting used to paddling pushy, scary, hard white water with consequence in an environment that you kind of know. I feel like that's good for anything, you know? Yep, I like that. Um, and then we have a long one here from Simon Wyndham. I'm not going to get into this. I'm going to put this in the show, show notes so you can read it. It's a good email. Um, he compares. I think he's covering a subject that if we bring it up too much, people are going to people are going to uh, revolt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's all about how you hold your paddle, feather, and length. And so I will put that back up there for uh, everybody to read in the show notes. Um, finally, one more. Um, email here. This is from Sam Bernstein. Sam says, this is a somewhat embarrassing question for me to uh, to be asking, but the curiosity is killing me. <laughs> and a couple of my other kayaking social media addicted boater friends have noticed that Ben Marr tags Lululemon men at a bunch of his Instagram posts. Do they actually sponsor him? Is he trying to get sponsored by them? If he is, have they used his media in any of their campaigns? Because that would be pretty funny awesome to see one of our own break out, uh, so to speak. That's from Sam Bernstein. So, Sam, one thing that we do on the Hammer Factor is listen to our listeners. And so I got a, uh, I went ahead and poised your question to the man himself, and this is what we got. Sam Bernstein. What up, dude? This is Benny Marr. I am in Zambia, Africa. And John Grace just hit me up asking me to answer a question. Uh, your email. And the, the start, your email begins with, this is an embarrassing question to ask. So I, I just have to say, you should have just asked me because if you're embarrassed at all about this question, now it's being answered on a podcast instead of by me just answering you. <laughs> Anyways, I have just suited up to go to the river, the mighty Zambambadubi. I am wearing Lululemon boxer briefs. Hear that? Uh, Lululemon swim shorts, army print, and a tank top. Also, Lululemon. Uh, they are one of my sponsors. I love them very, very much. It's an amazing crew of people over there. Uh, became instant friends with all the people I work with there. They have a few different tiers of sponsorship. They have elite ambassadors, uh, which somehow I ended up on. It's amazing. You should see the, the proper athletes that they, they work with. Um, and they have a couple other tiers that are, I don't really know what they are. So to answer your question, yes, I'm sponsored by Lululemon. And yes, they have used some of my stuff, but so far just on Instagram. And I am currently chatting back and forth with them uh, for an upcoming film project, which is going to be shot at some point during January, February, or March. Um, yeah, I'm actually pretty pumped about it, looking forward to it, and just trying to dial in the location. So, back to you, John, or whatever, I don't know. Here's your... I'm just going to go to the river now, and I'll try to send this audio note to you. And there you have it. There we go. <laughs> so. Oh, Benny. 
So, so <laughs> Sam, the answer is Benny has broke out. He is sponsored by Lululemon. He and he is and he's getting to work on a film project. So, I think Lululemon should kick us some cash for that segment. <laughs> I mean, is Lululemon that much bigger than Red Bull or or uh, I mean, who else? GoPro? I mean, something like that. I doubt it. I mean, I bet Red Bull's a bigger company than Lululemon. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, Red Bull's sponsoring NASCAR and whole nine yards. So, anyway, I love seeing IR product and Red Bull videos, like in the airport and stuff like that. You know, those little kiosks they sell Red Bull, or not Red Bull, GoPro cameras. You'd love to see IR there. Yeah, because you can see our skirts. You know, on the kayaking segments they always oh, have. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's killer. I have to take issue with something Benny said there, which was, this isn't just a podcast. That's right. I picked up on that, too. It was very generic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, take that yeah. we'll have to talk to Benny about that. But he did get back to us in about 30 minutes when I poised the uh, question. So that's pretty good. I, I got this in email form this morning from John Grace with the email body. We are the fucking National Enquirer of kayaking. <laughs> <laughs> inquiring minds want to know all right real quick before we move on here you got max blackburn lined up weld i'm trying to get him to talk about something he has some complaints he wants to come on the air about oh i like that but before we get max on you get him lined up in the background here boom shake the room I want to give a shout-out to our mid-show sponsor, Kaleva. Join Kaleva in Mexico for a week-long whitewater kayaking trips. Great trips for all levels of boaters. Come down and see what's beyond the imaginary big, beautiful wall. Led by Tom McEwen, who has been exploring Mexico for 30 years. He's supported by one of our instructors, like Dagger team member Bobby Miller, Liquid Logic team member Steve-O, Tom's nephew, ladies' man, and Waka bro, Eric Hansen. Explore the jungles, deep canyons, legendary waterfalls. Stick around for the Alsaseca race. Trips are from class two to four. Come for the waterfalls. Stay for the tacos. And most of our trips are based out of the Mexican-run eco-resort Aventurec, known for its great food, orange groves, and proximity to the best whitewater in Mexico. Check them out at their website, C-A-L-L-E-V-A dot org. So big thanks to those guys, and you know, I I was telling Lewis I think before you got on they've had several inquiries from our Hammer Factor ad, so that certainly makes us uh, feel good. And I mean, for all the listeners out there who dream of doing expeditionary paddling and listen to the show and hear all these great paddlers come on and talk about it, and they 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 want to live that 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 dream, this is the way to do it. No joke, this is the real deal. Very well said. So go to c a l l e v a dot org. Big thanks to those guys. Awesome folks. Okay, guys, I know you're not going to be able to hear this or comment on it, but this is a really good interview um, I got from Teo. I'm going to go ahead and roll this right now before we continue the show. I'd like to introduce our celebrity guest for this episode of The Hammer Factor, a former world record holder, extreme kayaking legend, um, pre-world's freestyle champion, and father of two. Welcome to the show, Teo Berman. Can, can you John, hear me? good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I can hear you just fine. So, what from that intro did I? Uh, would you like to fill in, or is there anything that I left out? Well, you did a pretty good job, like you said. Uh, former, uh, well, I had a couple world records back in the day. That was a long time ago for the highest waterfall I ever kayaked. 
Uh, bottom line, when I look back at my career, I just really see myself as having been a kayaker more than a record holder or things of that because it was just such a large part of my life for so long. Before we get into some particulars of your paddling career, one thing that always stood out to me was um, your kind of the contrast of how you grew up. I've I've met your mom on a few occasions out at the uh, Teva or the currently now GoPro Mountain Games. Um, you are a pretty um, uh, you're not exactly um, a hippie. But you were kind of raised that way on a, hip, a hippie commune. Can you can you kind of elaborate on your upbringing and maybe the way that motivated you to be who you are right now? Yeah, it's a great question. My my mother came from a reasonably middle class, upper middle class family in Seattle. Got out of college, traveled the world, spent quite a bit of time in Africa, and just decided she didn't want to live the orthodox, all American life. So she chose to move out to a mountain in eastern Washington where we no water, no running, uh, no water, no electricity, none of the modern day comforts. And I didn't know any different when I was born. But what I did know growing up is that if I wanted something, I had to create it for myself. If I wanted to go see a friend, we had no car, so I had to walk up the mountain that we live. I was a really young age that that whatever I wanted, I couldn't expect it. To be, it I couldn't expect it to be handed to me on a on a plate, so to speak. When I was in in the paddling scene, there were a lot of uh, paddlers that came from trust fund type backgrounds, and that was just never a part of uh, a part of my history. So what it really taught me when I got into paddling is that if I wanted to paddle full time because I love doing that more than anything, I had to create a way to make it pay because I didn't want to spend eight hours a day doing something I didn't enjoy. I wanted to paddle. And really, that was the, the motivating factor that made me decide I wanted to be a professional kayaker. What do you think – how did that translate into your uh, your training and preparation and how you approached kayaking, not just getting the funds to go kayaking? It's difficult to say. I don't know how much of the approach I took to kayaking was a product of the way I was raised and how much of it was just a product of who I was going to be because of – the genes I had when I was born. I'd like to think that a large element of the approach that I took to my career was uh, really driven by the way I, w- I, w- I was brought up. And it was I was really brought up to have no sense of entitlement. So I, my goals were always very clear to me when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I wasn't asking my mother or my father to buy me stuff because we didn't have any money. I mean, there were literally years that my mom made $4,000 that she had to feed her three kids. Uh, that money would go a long ways because there were no electricity bills or things things like that. But I just learned that if I wanted something, I had to create it. And I knew that the approach that I took to being an athlete was going to definitely ruffle some feathers, shall we say, because I couldn't afford, afford to, I, I suppose, um, rely on my father's money at the end of the day to, to make it to the next river. I had to create an income stream from paddling. Um so my goals were always very, very focused. Initially, when I, when I got into the sport, I just loved paddling the hardest stuff that I could possibly kayak. And at the time, I didn't really realize I was out there pushing the edge of the sport because I wasn't paying attention to what other guys around the world were doing in their kayaks. I was just doing it because I wanted to test myself. And once I felt like I'd tested myself in that arena long enough, I was looking for a new and that's when I got into freestyle kayaking. At the time, a lot of my critics were saying, well, 
yeah, Taylor's doing a good job running the hard stuff, but he won't live through the year or the year after that. And year after year, I was proving them wrong. And then I had a whole group of critics that were spoiling or even very good in the creep boat, but he's not good at freestyle kayaking. And what my critics perhaps didn't realize is they were really my uh, they were my biggest benefactors because they gave me the motivation to to prove them wrong. So I got into freestyle kayaking with the goal to to win the biggest event of the year. And the year that that I won the biggest event of the year was uh, it was an off world's year, so it was the pre world championships. And I won that. And then I was looking for a new goal, and I decided I'd get into the extreme extreme racing end of the sport. And my goal was to have a, a season where I was undefeated. And uh, Pat Keller made that very challenging for me. He was a very fierce competitor, but I did have a year where I went undefeated there. And that was really, that was the evolution of my, of what I did in the sport. And that's that I was constantly looking for a new challenge within the sport. And the reason I finally retired uh, six years ago was because I all the boxes that I wanted to or that really I was passionate about in the sport. And once I'd done that, I wanted a new challenge and I didn't want to continue paddling because, well, it was just the easy thing to do. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to find a new challenge. So I'm not sure that I exactly answered your question, but that's <laughs> there it is. Well, uh, through that, you know, extreme racing, extreme paddling, uh, you know, first descents of a lot of drops and and winning a, a freestyle world championship, what would you consider your expertise in the sport is? Not getting hurt. <laughs> I spent <you> know, <laughs> I spent I spent almost two decades paddling and really pushing the sport for a good part of that, and and I never had an injury, and that's probably my single greatest uh, or proudest achievement because uh, it shows that I use good judgment. Even when you could look at so many of the things that I did, look at them as an isolated incident and say, oh, God, that's just crazy. Well, you do that long enough without an injury, and it goes to show that there's some good judgment there. Um, so I was very proud of that. Um, I do remember that being said. I do remember after winning the pre-world championships and the feeling of, of really the last three years that I trained so hard to finally have that result was immensely rewarding also. So backing up a little bit to uh... – to your um, when you were approaching sponsors, gaining sponsorship deals and whatnot, one thing that stood out to me, I was doing a film project for Teva Footwear at the time. Adam Druckmann was working there, and we were discussing some different, um, uh, you know, things that we were going to do in the future. And your name got brought up, and your name got brought up, and uh, essentially, the way we were talking about sponsorships of various things and I was listening to these sponsorship deals where other people were negotiating a certain number of shoes per year and another, you know, they were trying to get a little cash for a trip and whatnot. And you were go and you were negotiating stock options and things that were totally outside of the box. Um, where, how did you come up with your approach to getting sponsorships? Did, did you have a mentor in that? Did you read books? How did you figure out exactly what you wanted to ask a sponsor? It's a really good question. Uh, my whole life, I've, you know, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And one of my strengths my entire life has just been selling. I suppose even from a young age, I sort of understood the notion that when you're selling somebody on something, what you really need to be doing is thinking in terms of what they want, not what you want. Because we all know what we want. But once we truly understand what the other person wants and we find a way to give it to them, then the sale's pretty easy. So to back up a little bit, when I decided to become a professional kayaker, I, I looked at what guys were doing in the sport ahead of me, what they were doing right, 
what I didn't think they were doing right. Um, I'm not really that creative, but I'm very good at looking what other people have done, tweak it to try and improve upon it. Dan Gavere at the time was was um, the generation before me, and he himself, but he never really made any money off of paddling. But I knew that when I was 30, 30, I didn't look back on the last 15 years of my paddling life and have nothing but great memories. Although that's incredibly important, I didn't want to then be lost and go through a midlife crisis at that age. I wanted to also be planning for, for my future beyond paddling, even though at the time it was so many years ahead. So what I did was I took a very different approach to being an athlete. I looked at myself really nothing more than, than a product. I had a billboard, and the more visible I was, the more valuable that billboard space would, would become. Uh, so everything about the approach that I took was different. To go back to what you were talking about with regard to Teva, sure, at the time, all the guys were asking for was really sandals for that contract. But if, if you're asking for sandals, you're not going to ever get more than sandals. And I sort of framed to Teva and to Adam the value that I could provide to their brand and then I thought, well, perhaps if I take an unorthodox approach to why I perceive the value that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be giving to that brand has value, I wanted to, t to tie my compensation to, to the value that I thought that I could bring to Teva at the time. And I thought the best way to do that would be through discussing stock options. And so essentially you had a performance marketing deal with them. You said, look, I'll take less knowing that I'm going to contribute and in the long run I'll get more. Is that kind of that's right. That's yeah. exactly that's exactly right. I mean, at the end of the day, any any partnership uh, should work out as long as the interests are, are mutually aligned. And the key to any good business relationship, in my opinion, is making sure that the economic interests are truly aligned well. And if they are, then you're going to be working in the same direction all the time. And if they're not, you're going to have mistakes. That's why when I look at, at the time that I spent with Eric being my videographer, Jock being my still photographer, we had a structured relationships in place so that whenever uh, I was doing something, they benefited and vice versa. And that's why we were able to have this great relationship for really 10, 15 year span and never have any problems because our, our interests were truly aligned well. There you go, Hammer Factor Nation. There's some value bombs. Make sure that your relationships add value to all parties involved if you want them to keep going. Um, so you, you said you kind of uh, thought of yourself as a billboard. The more numbers you could get, the more value you could get. Did you ever, you know, there was that tail Berman haters out there. And did you ever, did you ever feel, did you ever listen to what they were saying and, say, and feel like you were selling your soul out? Did you ever feel like you were selling out? Well, I listened to what they were saying. I never felt like I was selling out. And here's the reason. Define what selling out means. Well, it depends. If you're selling out um, your identity and what you believe in for money, that's what I would consider selling out. I completely agree with you. As I stated earlier, what was most important to me when I decided to become a professional athlete, or I should say my motivations for it, was so that I can afford to kayak every day because that's what I like more than anything. My definition of a sellout would be somebody doing something for money when they don't enjoy what they're doing. And you see people that do that on Wall Street and, and in all spectrums of life all the time. Uh, I was doing exactly what I, was do what I wanted to be doing and I was getting paid for it. The only way I was able to get paid to do exactly what I wanted to do was to understand how I could create value to brands. And the moment I wasn't able to create value to brands is, was the moment they would stop paying me and the moment I would have to get a real job and not be out paddling every day. 
So by your definition of the word sellout, by, by my definition of the word sellout, absolutely not. I was, I was living my dream, and I really wouldn't – looking back on my career, I wouldn't change any of it. The reality is a lot of the critics that I had, that being some of those from the Asheville crowd, <laughs> I suspect that if they were given the – if they were given the – if they were put in my shoes and they had the opportunity to get paid to paddle every single day, perhaps they would have made more of the choices that I made. But keep in mind, John, for a moment – there's a difference between a paddler that knows that they'll never be good enough to be a professional kayaker, or perhaps they would be good enough, but they like their normal nine to five job and they're happy doing that. Nothing wrong with that. But for me, I didn't want that. I wanted to be a professional kayaker. And there are certain compromises and sacrifices that one needs to make when they understand the value that they could provide to a brand. Well, there's certainly no doubt that you made some things happening and, and happen and, uh, you know, winning the winning the the pre world competition and 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 going undefeated. There's certainly some high points, but bring us to that low point. Bring us to the point when you thought, you know what, I'm going to get rid of this boat. I'm done with this paddle. It's time to do something different. Yeah, the the lowest point in my paddling career. It's actually a great question. Nobody's asked me it. I was out at the um, the Gorge Games back in it might have been '99 or 2000, and. I didn't make it through to, to the finals, and the only reason was just pure arrogance on my fault, on, on, my, on, uh, on a mistake I made. And it was, I remember NBC was going to do a big feature on me at the finals, et cetera, et cetera. We were in the prelims. It was a long boat uh, sprint to advance to the finals. The guys I was going against, I was much faster than. I knew it, and I went out ahead of them and then went to cut them off, thinking it would be more spectacular. One of them clipped the back of my longboat and spun me out. It was a very short dash, so I didn't have time to really spin all the way around and then and then make it to the finals. And it was 100% my mistake, and I learned a lot from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned I learned a lot from it, but it was an incredibly low point in my career because I knew that I had nobody to blame than my own arrogance. And uh, that's why I didn't make the finals, and I learned from it, and I certainly never made that mistake again. You know, I remember that. I was at that event. I, I actually made it through to the finals, to that final 16, and we raced through BZ and then on to Big Brother and yeah. Little Brother. That was, that, was a, that was a good event. That was, my, that was one of my uh, – I think that was my first West Coast race. I remember and that. And there you have it, and you smoked me. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, what is the you – know, going back to, you know, what, what's the best advice that you ever received um, – in regards to paddling and, and maybe life in general, but a lot of times those two kind of correlate. I remember when I was about a year or two into my paddling career, not career, but just after having started a year or two into it, there was an older gentleman by the name of Randolph Pierce. We all called him RP. He was from the East Coast. He was a squirt boater. He was also a creek boater. And his technical skills were incredible. I mean, they were incredible. And I remember him talking about before starting to run harder whitewater, learning to use pillows, learning to read the water, learning to use uh, little currents and waves to surf across rocks in front of rocks that might have a pillow to get more momentum to traverse across the river, things like that. And at the time, it was so overwhelming because there are so many intricacies, as you know, to truly being a good whitewater paddler. Gravity dictates that you're, you go down. When you go over a waterfall, you're going to make it to the bottom. But how you make it to the bottom and how you navigate your way through the rapid, well, that often is determined, or it's always determined by how good you are and how well you understand 
Whitewater and, and Reading and Rapid. And at the time, I remember just being overwhelmed by how much there was that I needed to learn. Uh, so the best advice I can get, I can give with regard to paddling is really to focus on the basics. Guys these days go from being a class one paddler to a class five paddler so much faster than, than we did back in the day. And just because you're running class five doesn't make you a good whitewater paddler. To me, what is so beautiful is when you watch a guy paddle something incredibly difficult and make it look like class one. That's when you're truly a good paddler. But any fool can get through class five and most of the time make it to the bottom, upside down, upright, or even pointed forward. Uh, it's really putting the time in to learn the rudiments so that when you start running class five, you can make it look like class one. Now, one of our listeners here at the Hammer Factor uh, sent us a link to your email with some uh, curious underwear modeling photos. What, <laughs> what, what, can, you, what can you tell us about, uh, about, about those photos and, and, and that part of your career? Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for bringing that up, John. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a Rolling Stone photo shoot. Uh, they contacted me. They were they being Rolling Stone wanted to do an article or a feature on different extreme athletes. And the photographer, his name's David LaChapelle. For those in the whitewater world, which is probably all of you that don't follow photography, he, he's probably the most famous fo- uh, photographer ever. Certainly, he was at the time. He was shooting Madonna. He was shooting presidents and if you look at his work, his genre is more on the sex appeal side. It's actually completely on the sex appeal side. And I knew I was in for something that, that I was going to, I was going to perhaps regret given all the, uh, all, all the comments that would come from the paddling world, but I didn't think it would be right to go into his world and try and dictate the way he can shoot me. I knew that he perceived himself as an artist. He, he is an artist. You don't have to like his art, but at the end of the day, it was his shoot. And he, um, I was going to let him choose and do what he wanted. It's actually quite interesting. So I flew down to L.A. He did what nobody knows. In fact, you're the first person that's ever asked me this. But what nobody knows is that the first shoot I did, I was in Speedos jumping out of a swimming pool wearing a paddle. And that was a ridiculous shot. I flew home and I went, oh, my gosh, what have I done? What? Now, what do you mean you were in Speedos? (laughs) You were in Speedos wearing a paddle. What do you mean? I was in Speedos holding a paddle, oh, okay, okay. jumping from underwater, coming out of the water with this water falling off of off of my body, and it was ridiculous, and it was it was incredibly cheeseball. And I went home thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> he called me that night and said, hey, you know what, Teo, we can do better with you. I've n- I've never done this. I've never scheduled a reshoot. Would you fly back to LA? I had this tech campaign where they paid me a quarter million dollars to create this backdrop. And this was back around 99. The tech company ended up going under during the dot-com crash, but they gave him the rights to use this backdrop. He remembered it after I flew home after the first shot and said, would you come back? I want to shoot you uh, on a bed, in underwear, but we want (laughs) to impose this backdrop. And I I said, all right, I'll, I'll come back to L.A. And that's the history to that Rolling Stone photo shoot. Very good. So... What is it? Uh, what are you most fired up with these days uh, in in the sport of kayaking? If you've followed anything on social media or been paddling yourself, or, and in general, what has you the most fired up? What has me the most fired up these days is dirt biking. When I got out of paddling, or I should say, when I retired from from kayaking, I was really looking for a new challenge, a new outlet that I could I could not be good at something, so that I could see the learning curve again, because that's just such an exciting time in in the progression of any sport. So I got into dirt biking, uh, more the the very, very hard enduro style 
that that I'm into. And what I want to do these days is I want to go to R- Romania and race Red Bull Romaniacs, which is a five-day race, kind of recognizes one of the hardest motor races in the world. That's what I'm really fired up about right now. That and, of course, spending time with my two young kids and um, living life in the gorge. Tell me about your two young kids. My son, Cole, is almost five. He has a birthday in February. My daughter's uh, six and a half. My daughter is as girly girl as you can imagine. And my son is exactly like me. He's just pushing the envelope. In fact, at, at four years old, I'd take him up to, uh, to mountain bike. We'd do a downhill shuttle and do stuff that, if I showed it to you, you wouldn't even believe a four-year-old's doing this. And it's, it's just like having a, a mini-me to go out and explore <laughs> the world and go on adventures. And it's just... It's just such a wonderful time with the kids in the age they are. Yeah, fatherhood, you know, having kids is a it's a lot of work, but man, it's a it's a special thing, there's no doubt about that. It it's incredible. I mean, really we're we're creating, you know, we have an opportunity to either create assets or liabilities in this world, and I want to spend a tremendous amount of time with my kids so that I can raise them to be productive members of of society, to know, you know, have to have good moral values and and to have buddies to go out and do stuff with for the next bunch of decades. I don't know. You've always been an inspiration to me, Teo. I've always, uh, you know, had a good time talking with you and whatnot. And uh, I just want to say thanks for coming on the Hammer Factor. One thing that always struck me, um, I don't know, it's not strange or odd, but just always struck me was when you kind of did your exit and announced your retirement from competitive kayaking, you did that on there was a video featuring you paddling a big wave and that was kind of the announcement of your retirement. I had never seen you, uh, you know, kayak surf before in the ocean or anything like that. What, what made you choose that? It's a really good question. I almost retired two years earlier, uh, to backtrack on my career again. What I was initially incredibly passionate about was the extreme end of the sport. And once I'd done that long enough and achieved some of those goals and moved on to uh, the the freestyle kayaking side of things and achieved that goal. I needed a new challenge to, it's just, that's what, what I thrive on is, is challenges and setting, setting goals. Uh, once I was the, I, I won the freestyle uh, championships, then it was the extreme end of the sport and I'm sorry, the extreme racing end of the sport. Once I'd had that undefeated season, I almost retired then but I was looking for a new challenge, and when Red Bull said they'd fund my big wave project, it gave me another challenge. Uh, at the time, I wasn't convinced that there was a kayak on the market that was really designed to stand the impact of a big wave if it were to land on me. So I, I had the, the, the opportunity to work with Randy Phillips uh, to design a surf kayak that I thought would, would perform on really big waves and withstand the impact. Uh, if I if I got crushed by one of the big waves, so ultimately it wasn't so much as uh, a marketing move uh, as an exit piece from the sport. It was another challenge within the sport, something that I wasn't good at. I'd never done surf kayaking prior to to sort of making that announcement. Rusty Sage and others were far better surf kayakers than myself, but what motivated me was that I wasn't good at it and that I thought I could surf really big waves, and it sounded like challenging, and it sounded like a very challenging endeavor that would take a couple years to complete. And once I'd done that, uh, there really was nothing left in the sport that that excited me from the perspective of something new that I hadn't already been doing for, for a long time in the sport, and that's why I knew it was time to – that's when I knew – to be honest with you, that's when I knew I'd be a sellout if I continued kayaking because I'd be doing it for the wrong reasons. I didn't have the same motivation to try and improve 
because the reality is at the time I retired, I was so good. It was a full-time job to not get worse. And there, I mean, I'm not saying I was the only one that was that good, but you get once you get to a point in your career where you're at, let's say, 97% of your potential, any incremental increase is so hard to achieve. When I got into kayaking or into dirt biking after I retired, I was so bad at it. I was at like 5% of my potential that every day I went out, I got better at it. So for me, it's seeing a, this learning curve for myself is, is incredibly exciting. And, um, and that's why I knew it was time for a new challenge because um, I, I just wasn't – I didn't have the same passion that I'd had for all those years when I was doing it every single day. Well, I got a new challenge for you. It's the Green River Narrows race. And this is a personal invitation from me for you to bring your whole family out. I'll cover your entry fee and come out and race the green race, Tao. Come on. That, that's, that's a challenge that, that sounds quite appealing. The, as fast as the guys are these days, I think I'd have to spend quite a bit of time in my, uh, in my kayak simply to not be embarrassed by it. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm dealing with that every year, so welcome to the club. <laughs> so it'd be both of us. You know, I'll take that under consideration. One of the regrets I actually have, John, uh, when I look back at my career, and I always wanted to do this, it just never worked with, for whatever reason it never worked, was coming out and racing the green race. I felt like so much of the criticism, the Theo Berman criticism, was coming from that crowd that I thought it would be really fun to go and spend 10 days with that crowd training with that crowd and then at the time i certainly thought beating that crowd but we'll never know um so that's one of those things that if i spend time in my boat next summer i would love to take you up on i'd love to take you up on that come out with my family it's been years since i've seen you and a lot of the the other Asheville crowd that i know i, I would love that well it's an open invitation and we'd certainly love to love to have you out here once you got out here i'm sure you would uh there's a lot more warmth than the few bad apples. You know how it is. Um, I know how it is. That being said, John, I really, really do appreciate that invite. I paddled the, the Green River one time. I, I remember I, I followed somebody down, which is always the most fun way to run a river, to not get out and scout, to know that the guy that's in front of you knows it so well, and you count on him having good lines that you could just read and run. And it was just such a memorable experience that I would love to be out on the East Coast paddling the Green River with you. Well, before we close this interview, is there anything you'd like to uh, for the Hammer Factor listeners to know or any in a, any bits of nuggets or value bombs you'd like to drop on them? Yeah, I think your questions have been good and nothing comes to mind right now. Thank you for uh, inviting me on the Hammer Factor. Yeah, thank you. All right, we ready for the Blackburn? Let's come on. He has something to complain about. Max Blackburn is a super rep of the Northwest. As I keep saying, he reps IR product. You know, and I, one of the things we can ask him about is I think there's a notion out there like if you're going to have the – you want to go ahead and bring him on and I can – I'll lead into this. And I think there's a notion out there like the best job to have in this industry is a sales rep. Like that is the best of the best. You could be a paddle sports sales rep because it's just constant – paddling and hanging and you know hooking people up with gear and you know you get to it's basically like one big paddling lifestyle dream right that's pretty much what i think it is i mean max do you do you get that like people come up to you and they're like oh you rep paddle sports gear that is the best i'd love to do that <laughs> do you Matt, hear that wait a second max what do you what do you what do you have there 
Welcome yeah, to the Hammer. Right. Hold on. Welcome to the Hammer <laughs> Factor. First of all, but you like <laughs> you look at seriously whacked out, my friend. What the heck is going on? What are you on, my man? <laughs> he, he looks like what a is... cult leader. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more like like Maharishi Max. <laughs> Do we need to call well, you back after you take care of something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this cat here that just won't leave me alone, so I've kind of given up and just let it have its way. <laughs> Seriously, well, that is. That, I don't even where to start with this. <laughs> definitely threw me, threw me a little bit here. All right, let's get back on point. So, Max, you're here to talk about the uh, glamorous role of a sales rep. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. You know, You've heard this before, right? The notion out there that a sales rep in paddle sports is like that's the best job to get. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be a reoccurring theme. Do you want to set people straight on that once and for all? Um, and you don't have to describe your personal experience. You can describe the generic paddle sports sales rep experience. I mean, I think everybody's perception of it is pretty accurate. You know, it's a lavish lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> um, full of perks, benefits. Um, you know, just fly around in my private jet visiting the house. <laughs> taking them out to dinner. I'm, I'm everybody's best friend. You know? <laughs> Everybody wants to know me. They, want to know me. Um, they can't wait to take your calls. <laughs> What's the, so, yeah, uh... and, and you don't need to go to college for it either. So. <laughs> you know, don't listen to what everyone's telling you. Max, what's your worst day on the job? What's the day that you just called somebody and they just threw an egg at you or slitted your tire or like lay a, give me give me one of those phone calls like it's gonna come back to me I know it is <laughs> but go ahead I, I got some it. I got some I can talk about well too so if you want to just get into that Max I'm willing to go there <laughs> oh man you know luckily there aren't too many days that are really that awful. Um, I'd say the worst days usually involves something to do with a product not being what a customer expected it to be, whether it being our fault or theirs, you know, if someone gets something that is significantly different enough than they expected, it does not make for a pleasant conversation. Um, especially if you've been telling someone that something is going to be a certain way for a long time and then they get it in their hands and it's not that way. Uh, it can take a lot, a lot of explaining to make things right. I can't quit looking at the cat. <laughs> <laughs> Has that cat ever bit you? It looks huge. Um, is that a cat look huge to you guys? Yeah, so last night we were were checking this out and looking some information up. We determined that this is a, I think it's called a Maine Coon cat, or at least a part <laughs> Maine Coon. I don't know if you guys have seen these things, but it's definitely worth a Google search. Can you hold these it up for us? These are like bigger than most dogs. Some of them are like four feet long. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> I'm at home. This is compelling. Like, this is just absolutely you're, you're compelling. You're in... Uh, in... 
I'm, I'm in White Salmon, and you so you know I've already gotten about a dozen texts or calls today to go kayaking. It rained last night, so you know people are out running waterfalls, running the Little White, doing all kinds of fun stuff. The sun's out, so it'd be a particularly good day to be outside. But you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm I'm trying to sell some sweatpants and underwear. <laughs> the right answer. <laughs> So, Max, you have... Well, thanks you know, we for coming on the Hammer Factor. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> you uh, you've had some... We've talked about the Hammer Factor in the past, and you, you evidently you have some complaints about stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, you know, I've listened to most of the episodes, and I've heard my name come up a few times, and it seems like typically after my name comes up, then there's some sort of idea that is suggested came from me or not even an idea it seems to be stated as a fact <laughs> and I, I don't know that that was necessarily uh true in every case you pinned laying treats on evan and the closed grip on evan yeah the closed grip is more of just kind of an idea i thought that maybe that's where it came from um which he sounds like he somewhat owned up to it but, you know, I've been seeing some other paddlers using the closed grip. I think, you know, one that comes to mind is Andy Ole. Like to maybe, you know, shift the blame over to uh, Andy Ole's hair solstice. He's been using a pretty tight grip. He's kind of off that, though, I thought. Yeah, you might be right. Do you have any other untruths? It's trying to start <laughs> controversy here. Do you have any um, other untruths you'd like to share with our Hammer Factor listeners? You know, I do remember John backtracking, uh, making sure that your listeners were aware that I had sent him a certain uh, article from Outside Magazine and kind of came across as me being an avid Outside Magazine subscriber, which I would like everyone to know. <laughs> that is a black mark that needs to be addressed. <laughs> I actually had the article sent to me from someone else and <laughs> it to be pertinent to the topic you guys were about to get into. So I sent it on over and yeah, just, just want to make that clear. But I, you know, one thing I do stand by is I definitely remember Evan using the term yeasted and whether he remembers it or not, I, I fully stand by that proclamation. Well, that's good. I mean, it doesn't matter if he no, said it or not because it's a term now. Like, I can't go is anywhere term, without people being like, yo, let's go get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the truth, dude. I'm on trail yeah. runs. I was on a trail run the other day at this race in Chattanooga. I come to this bridge, and I'm crossing it, and these dudes are like, used to used to used to. I'm like, what the, what the fuck are you talking That's about? Good term. <laughs> I mean, it's dude, that one's not going anywhere. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it's be taking hold on the East Coast. <laughs> I feel like this show has been kind of lackluster, and Max has really just fit right into that group. <laughs> the energy this has been just, a low. This has been a low energy show. The for energy sure. is just radiating from that cat. <laughs> the cat's pretty amazing. Well, you know, I've been trying to get a hold of Weld for a couple of days here to talk about some actual business stuff, and <laughs> gave him a call, and apparently he was recording Hammer Factor, so I figured it was the best way to get his attention. Well, what do you want to talk about? Let's just talk about it right now. What's the problem? 
Are we talking? Oh, I don't think it'd be very interesting to to our listeners here. How, how are the how are the sweatpants going? Are they flying off the shelves, gangbusters? Oh yeah, we're already uh, we're looking at the next round, right? Well, I love those things. I make. I have actually that's the first product we've made that I actually like. Can we put? Can we give? Can 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 I get the credit for that idea? Well, or, or are I going to max that over? You can have whatever credit you want, okay. but you realize every product I make, someone comes up to me and says, "You're going to give me credit for that." Blah. Happens every. And this is how you discredit. You sound like Donald Trump, (laughs) dude. It's like I told you. I was like, dude, you need to make something like these pajamas. You remember I had those pajamas. I like showed you pictures of them, and I was like, this is what I go to the green on in Dawn Patrols. I don't even put on my gear. You show me like MC Hammer wrestling pants. Is what you showed me, (laughs) and that's not something we would would ever make. Uh You know what I'm really excited for? Well, is for you to go down to Peru and get bitten by a bunch of sand flies and then you're going to come back inspired to bring back the board short pants <laughs> all right yeah i'll bring those back i'd love to but max will tell you the reality is we'll make them and stores won't buy them you know what right Be- is that is that correct I, I think it depends on what pants you're talking about here like like the pants i, I fixed for you your ones you've had forever we are so off topic like the ones that People are just are... long pants that are board short material yeah yeah, they're good pants. Well, thanks for the insight. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Max. That's this has been great. They're they're <laughs> special, man. You're I, gonna get down there and you're gonna get just like molested by sand flies. You're gonna have like your wish you had your board short pants if you don't have them. Leishmaniasis swirled away from when you actually made them. And you're gonna have them tucked into your socks, <laughs> and you're gonna be like, I'm gonna come home and start making these things again. All right, I, I'd love to make a pants. I love making pants are the easiest thing to make in the in the world compared to a dry suit. I'd love to make something like that. All right, let's make the pants. <laughs> well, okay. Up. Well, Max, it's like in a very weird place. <laughs> I'm not sure where to go with this show, but you know, being that we got Max here, let's just go ahead and get in some ramps and raves and end this before the show is officially. Are you going to introduce Teo Burma, our guest? I'm going to edit that in long before we're talking about this. So that's already happened to our listeners. Max, do you remember where you were and what you were doing when you heard that Teo was retiring from kayaking? <laughs> that's a you joke. Know, I, I do, actually. <laughs> you do? <laughs> I do. Um, yeah, I it was at the Little White Race. I'm sitting with a cat in my lap. <laughs> <laughs> the sun radiating behind my head, creating a, <laughs> a heavenly glow. <laughs> my hair was <laughs> standing more or less straight up on end. <laughs> do, 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 you think, do you think Red Bull sent Tao like a gold watch as like a retirement <laughs> president? Or do you think he gets like a pension? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember how he announced his retirement, Max? Um, I believe I just overheard him telling a friend of mine that he wasn't racing because he was retired. And, you know, I almost fell over. It was so shocking. It's kind of crushing, <laughs> too. He's a childhood hero of mine. It's just something I never thought I would hear. Hmm. just can't mentally prepare yourself for something like that. <laughs> Well, we're going to have to have you back on the show again, Max. <laughs> Dude, we are so off the rails with this, Max. I mean, we are off the rails. 
<laughs> All right. Dude, let's keep Max on and let's get into some rants and raves because I don't, I mean, once Max is gone, it's like a whole Max new You're like, I want to rave about <laughs> hot tea. I love hot tea. <laughs> God, the energy is infectious. <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> Fuck it, I'm raving about Max Blackburn <laughs> coming on the Hammer Factor with this giant cat. <laughs> just driving to show what? Just like a dead, <laughs> just a, like a, like a, a gigantic <laughs> beat. This is like hanging an elephant in Irwin's scene. Man, <laughs> there's no going back. Wow. All right. You know. I did get into a conversation the other day about a town being uh, a what? Apparently, it's being terrorized by an elephant. Who? In Africa, but there are laws that prevent them from doing anything to this elephant. And I told the person who was telling me the story about it, and he was uh, very interested in the story of Mary. Hmm. Well, I think the Hammer Factor T-shirt should have an elephant on the front of it somehow, with holding a paddle. You know, with hands very close to whatever it has for hands very close together. Ooh, I like that. Mary's like right. hanging, holding the paddle close together. <laughs> I don't want to get too morbid here, you know. Bent shaft. Shirt. Yeah, no hanging elephants, man. I can't wear a shirt with a hanging elephant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Max God. got out from under that, the that cat. That was some anonymous boat review guy level. <laughs> Dude, this is the most off the rails the show has ever been you know we <laughs> like, should i apologize for the i want to apologize for the show right now <laughs> we're the cool. show packed nothing we'll come back in 2018 with some new ideas nah yeah. man nah man you, you guys aren't here in the teo interview it's really good all right um let's do some rants and raves with max let's, let's put him on the spot max what's your rant or rave um i got i got a rant Let's hear it. I got a rant about being somewhat accosted by a surfer the other day in California. Were you in the were you in the ocean? Um, I just just gotten out of the ocean. I'm gonna leave out some details here, just uh, I don't think it's necessary for people to know exactly where this happened, but um yeah, there were three of us in the ocean. We just surfed some waves in. On kayaks. Two of, us got, two of us got out. One was still surfing. You were in kayaks. We were in kayaks. We were in sea kayaks. We'd been out rock gardening. And then uh, there were some nice waves near the beach, so we surfed them in. And uh, one of us chose to keep surfing for a while. And um, while two of us were watching him continue to surf this guy just ran up on us really quick and uh, was visibly angry. He was shaking. He was so angry. And um, he had a Was he in the water? No, Did no. Did he come he out was, of the water? No, no. He had parked on the, on the road. Mm-hmm. We didn't see him until he was like right up behind us. And uh, he came over to us and started asking us if we had a permit to be here and um, was asking like if, if we were allowed to be teaching classes here. I guess he thought that 
it was a, a lesson that was happening. Um, and we, we quickly explained to him that this wasn't a lesson. We were just out playing. You know, I was visiting. I was in town hanging out with some friends, just having some fun in the ocean. And then he, uh, these friends of mine, they have a kayaking school where they do both whitewater and, uh, and some sea kayaking instruction. And he was very quick to claim that they had been getting rich off of kayaking in the spot and teaching lessons all summer. He, I, th- I believe his, his words were, you guys are out here making a ton of money all summer without getting, going through the proper legal procedures, and I just can't have it. And he was, uh, as we realized later, he was recording with his phone, recording the conversation. And uh, I think, you know, you can just tie this into a general, um, I don't know, lack of courtesy with people with opposing views um, approaching each other in ways that you're just not going to get a good response. And, yeah, I don't know whether you're a surfer confronting a kayaker or, you know, Republican or Democrat approaching the other side. Like, there's just a way to approach a conversation in a reasonable, respectful manner um, if, if you're looking to have any sort of decent discourse with the other person and this person was just coming at it from such a unreasonable place it was just kind of surprising shocking to see it was very unfortunate just kick his ass good time (laughs) did you have a cat with you (laughs) i don't know it's not you know i don't do a lot of sea kayaking so um i don't experience the surfer versus kayaker thing very often i've you know heard about it but yeah it was just a little frustrating to experience it was unfortunate you know we're all just out there trying to have fun i think we should be able to get along and settle our differences or at least have a reasonable conversation thank you for that max (laughs) (laughs) would anybody else like to follow that up with a rant or a rant (laughs) oh man you might just want to cut that one out (laughs) there is no way I'm cutting any of this out because this is going to give us banter for for at least half of next year It's called the Max Blackburn effect. (laughs) I apologize to everyone out there. (laughs) All right, I'm going to rave about getting on a plane tomorrow morning and going and flying to uh, 12,000 feet, hanging out in Cusco. Same elevation as base camp at Everest. Badass, dude. I'm so jealous. It's more fucking like it. That is is a really good one. Lewis? You're gonna rave about it, or that's it. That's it. Um, pretty weak. Yeah, this is the worst show ever. I'm gonna rave about bike share in DC. Um, man, like when they first started with the bike share, I thought it was just like a stupid idea. Like, I don't know. It's like who doesn't just if you want to ride a bike, just buy a bike, right? Like, why do you need to have like a bike share? But man, I like come into town and there's like these stations and it's two bucks. You can rent a bike. You can go wherever you want. And it is like by far the fastest, most pleasant way to get around in downtown D.C. It's flat. 
it's like there's so much fucking traffic like everything would take forever in a cab or walking and you can just like cruise across town like nothing just like ripping through traffic those are all over asia pretty sweet i was dubious i was dubious at first but i was wrong bike share it's good bike share that's a good one well thank you for listening to hammer factor 39 the worst one yet (laughs) seriously thank you i want to give you a special thank you to everyone who lasted this entire show because that is maybe we are done maybe this really is the last episode (laughs) well all right hammer factor out